Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, conviction that your word is, um, is all-sufficient and that you would help us escape the temptation to think that something else can give us greater wisdom, something else can uh, give us better direction for our life, or that there's other things that we need in addition to your word uh, in order to live the good life and follow Jesus. I, I pray that we would just have an absolute confidence in the scriptures as they have been delivered to us, and I pray that that confidence would lead us to live out the commands of scripture with conviction. Um, guide our discussion today as we talk about a subject that needs that kind of biblical application and I pray that our discussion would be just fruitful in Jesus name amen all right mark chapter 10 So how do I say this at the beginning? Sort of along the lines of what I was praying. The Bible does not speak about every subject. Okay? So the Bible doesn't necessarily explain to you where you should go to get your groceries or what kind of car you should drive. It gives you principles about even those kinds of things, right? Uh, If you can avoid it, you should not buy groceries from somebody who is you know, engaging in rampant immorality. You wouldn't want to support that kind of thing. Um, you know, when it comes to buying a car, you should be wise in the way that you spend your money. Those kinds, of, those kinds of principles, but the Bible does not speak to the subject of grocery shopping or car buying. And there's a myriad of other subjects that it does not speak directly to. But the subjects about which it does speak, it speaks conclusively, all sufficiently. And, and what I'm getting at is, um, you know, from time to time, particularly like like in counseling, I'll hear people say to me, well, yeah, okay, I understand what the Bible says about this, but, you know, my therapist, my counselor, this book. And I'm not saying that we should reject the wisdom that can be gained through learning or observation. Uh, Proverbs says, consider the ant, O sluggard, Right? Stop being lazy and be like the ant. So we can look at natural revelation and we can arrive at conclusions that are wise. But all of these things need to be brought under the authority of God's word. Okay, and we're going to talk about that. I mean, I want to say this at the outset because we're going to talk about the biblical position on divorce. And the fact of the matter is the church is really generally in America not faithful when it comes to this teaching. And, um, you know, people will reference different books and say, well, based on this book, I think, you know, we should take a more mitigating position on this. And what we're saying when we say something like that is Jesus doesn't really know what he's talking about. Um, or the way of Jesus is, is theoretically nice, but it's not practically useful. And uh, that's foolishness. So any questions on that at the outset? All right, Uh, Mark chapter 10 says, And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. 
And Pharisees came up in order to test him. And in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. <laughs> I think that that's maybe a gentle way of saying, and they didn't really like his previous answer. Verse 11, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. All right, so to begin with verse 10, Jesus is moving south from the region of Galilee, probably following the Jordan because it says beyond the Jordan. And uh, so he's kind of maybe weaving his way back and forth across the Jordan, or maybe he travels south and goes across the Jordan. The point is he's heading towards Jerusalem. Ultimately, he's making his way to the cross. So Mark is pushing us that direction. And um, <clears throat> Mark tells us here that crowds continue to gather to him in verse 1. And we already know how the story ends. I mean, when Jesus is on the cross, where are the crowds? If they're not there mocking him, they're scattered, they're gone. They no longer want to attach themselves to this man. His fame is gone and they have abandoned him, right? Uh, but pretty much up until the moment of his arrest, Jesus is a very popular guy. And the crowds continue to flock to him. And don't we kind of see human nature reflected here? I mean, every so often you'll notice this cycle in pop culture. Somebody who is an absolute superstar that everybody loves and wants to associate themselves with, wants to follow, suddenly kind of falls from grace, if you will. And then it's like the hyenas coming to just devour them, right? I mean, I bet you if we spent two minutes, we could list a whole bunch of names. But... Silly people like, well, probably Joe Biden is even going through this right now, right? My guess is he will soon be devoured by the very same people that propped him up to be president. Um, so Jesus still at this point has crowds following him, but it won't be long until they abandon him. And Mark points out that it was Jesus' custom to what? Verse 1. <coughs> Say it again. Yeah, to teach. <coughs> so, one of the most significant things that Jesus does is teach people. He does not heal every person who follows him. But he does teach every person who follows him. Right? I mean, if you were following Jesus, you were guaranteed to get some of his teaching. Even if you weren't guaranteed to get one of his miracles. <coughs> and we live in a sad age where... Uh, many people who call themselves Christians um, are really not all that interested in the teaching of Jesus. And maybe this is not a very good example, but I mean, look at this class, right? Like how many people consider themselves a part of Maricopa Springs, 
but are not all that interested in maybe showing up to adult Sunday school. Now, there might be a bunch of reasons for that. We don't offer child care, and, you know, it is kind of early on a Sunday morning. So I'm not suggesting that, like, we're better than these people, those people, because we're here. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that, or, or let's take another phenomenon. Anytime the church starts some kind of new group that has to do with teaching, you have this phenomenon where lots of people sign up and register, show up week one, and if it goes on for 10 weeks, by, t by week 10, how many do you have? A small handful, right? So uh, we just live in an age where people are not that interested in teaching. And maybe that has to do with the way that our culture operates. Like we, we live in, you know, 30 second sound bites, whether that's how the news is reported or commercials we listen to or, you know, the TikTok videos that we're watching, whatever. Um, but central to the Christian faith is teaching. Uh, ironically, I have a book on my shelf that somebody gave me called Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And it's about how evangelicals are just not very intellectually engaged. Um, the, ir the ironic part is I haven't read it yet. <laughs> not because I'm not interested, but just because I, I have other things that I've been reading. But I should tackle that one. The point is, Jesus commanded that in making disciples, what did he say in, in Matthew chapter 28? Yes, go therefore uh, and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. In other words, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Well, you can't teach somebody to obey if you haven't first taught them the principles, right? Um, we as Christians should be very committed to helping people know and understand the teachings of Jesus so that then they can follow and abide by the teachings of Jesus. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of Christians aren't that interested in that. Um, but we should be. All right. Then you get to verse 2. In response to what Jesus is teaching... I think in response to what Jesus is teaching. Welcome, Jonah. Glad you're here. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to make the assumption that as Jesus is teaching them, the Pharisees, they don't like his teaching. Right? And we've talked about this. In their eyes, he's an unauthorized teacher. He's ignorant. He hasn't been through the official schools in order to get the right credentials for the teaching that he's bringing. Uh, you know, they liked to find all kinds of loopholes. And Jesus liked to eliminate loopholes. And so they don't like the teaching of Jesus. And so they come up in order to test him. Really what the word means is not, their goal is not to authenticate his teaching. As if they are, they're going to ask him a question and then turn to the crowd and be like, okay guys, everybody, his, his answer is legitimate. You can trust this guy. He's a good teacher. Their goal is to ask him this question so that they might then say to the crowds, you shouldn't listen to this guy. His teaching is wrong, right? So this is a, a test that is a challenge. They want to discredit Jesus with this question. Their assumption is this question will be too hard and he will get it wrong. Any thoughts on any of that stuff? Where are we again? Uh, we're in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. All right, so the nature of Jesus' argument here deserves some careful consideration in verses 3 through 9. So let's reread it. 
The question is, is it lawful a man to for, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? How would the anybody know how would the Pharisees answer that question? Generally yes or generally no. There was I, I heard there was like two different schools and the two different schools had different views on it. Like one of them they believed you could really divorce your wife for any grounds, for any reasons, like her interrupting dinner. And then the other one believed that it was strictly only in um like in the strictest of cases. Yeah, that's a good answer. And this is pretty classic of the Pharisees where they had, you know, fighting and division within themselves. And I think you've got the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel, I think, are the two different schools. Um, but there's this debate. But I, I would lean generally actually towards the Pharisees thought it was legit for there to be divorce. And that's why at one point when this subject comes up, and it might be in Luke's gospel, uh, maybe somebody knows the exact reference. We could find it. The point is, uh, when Jesus gives his teaching on this, uh, the response from the Pharisee or from the uh, disciples is basically... This is a hard teaching. We don't like this. Like, it'd be better for a man not to get married if he can't just divorce his wife whenever he wants, right? Does anybody know the reference for that? <clears throat> Sorry. Um, the point is, generally, I think that the Pharisees were, were probably more in support of divorce than not. Um, all right. So they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And really, this is the trick, right? Because if Jesus says yes, he's going to upset half the crowd, or at least those more conservative Pharisees. If he says no, then he's going to upset the other side, right? So, like, this is a trick question. Um, verse 3, Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? That's a great response, <laughs> right? Like, what does the Bible say? What did God say about this? Um, verse 4, they said... Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. I mean, what happens if you hack off part of your flesh? If you separate a chunk of your flesh? Yeah, it dies, right? Like whatever that chunk is, it dies, right? I mean, if you have to have your arm amputated, you've divided your flesh. Your arm cannot live independent of your body. So this is some pretty stunning imagery. But the nature of the argument that Jesus makes here, I think, deserves some careful consideration, okay? So they're asking Jesus his teaching or maybe his opinion on divorce. Jesus replies by pointing them to the law of Moses. That's the marriage ethic that defines the people of Israel. Uh, I don't know. Maybe there could be some argument where he says, what does God, verse 3, he says, what did Moses command you versus what did God command you? But the fact of the matter is that the law that Moses gave to the people is the law of God, right? That was. Is that a command? Okay, so let's, we're going to look at this. Um, so let, let me get, I'll get there in one second, but uh, they explain Moses permitted divorce. Okay, so this is Deuteronomy 24. Why don't you turn there? You're, you're stealing my thunder, Rick. No, no, you're good. I love it. That's, that's what you should do. 
Deuteronomy 24. Somebody want to read nice and loud for us? Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through uh, 4? Okay. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter husband dies, he took her as a wife. Then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin to the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So, so thank you. Somebody want to try and summarize that for us? Um, well, I, I mean, part of, part of what I'm saying here is, of course, when it says when a man divorces his wife, like the flesh, like their flesh separating from one another, as what God joined together, then you're not to put it back together. Yeah, I think that kind that's like not to put an amputated limb back on the body that when it's been severed. Yeah, totally. So I think that that is probably the the kind of final implication there. I I I, I don't know. As I as I read this, I don't see any clear like mosaic command that says you're permitted to divorce your wife. Am I wrong in that? I don't see a command, but I see a permission. Okay, so I see a permission, right? But that's not what they say. Jesus says, what did Moses command you? In answer to the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, there's no, there's no other passage that in the, in the law that deals with divorce, like this particular aspect of divorce. This is it. So they ask the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus says, what did Moses command you? Do you see a clear command regarding what Moses says you can or can't do with the initial reasons for divorce. What I see is how to deal with the consequences of divorce. Yep. But it also implies an assumption there will be. Right, an, an assumption that there will be. So the word that comes to mind here is concession, right? I think Moses is kind of making a, a sort of concession. Um, I see less of a command and more of like, a, look, in this situation, here's what you do. Does that make sense? Are you going to look at Matthew 19's version? Yes. Oh. We will get there in a minute. Um, well, do you think that it applies I mean, right at this point? Yeah, because it, it's exactly what you're saying. They're trying to say it's a command. <clears throat> and clearly when you look at what Moses said, it was, it was an allowance. Right. But they say, why did Moses command us to give divorce papers? Right. And Jesus says, Moses permitted you to divorce. Yeah, let's actually hold off on going there for one minute. Let me just continue to try and reason through uh, this just based on Mark, okay? So uh, you're not going to find any other like real clear statement about divorce in the law other than this, okay? So I think that when Jesus then replies, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment, I think the real thrust of his meaning here is your hardness of heart has led you to understand what Moses said in this particular erroneous way. Right? It's your hardness of heart that has caused you to read 
the law of Moses in this way. And part of the reason why I think we have to go there is we, we encounter a very tricky concept here. Um, does, Mo, does God make concessions for people based on the hardness of their heart? Right? Okay, so I, I don't think I'm being very, very clear, but let me try and make it more sense. Um, verse 5, Jesus says, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment. <clears throat> is he saying, your heart is hard, and therefore Moses was going to make things a little easier on you, and so he allowed this? If Moses is speaking as a representative of God, is that what we would expect for God? In other words, maybe I can make the application that like, you know, if a young man comes to me with a lust problem, am I supposed to say, well, yeah, you know, you're, you're a young man, you're unmarried, so God would probably like allow you to look at pornography if it helps you kind of keep that, you know, under control. Do we make concessions like that? I don't think so. So I think when Jesus references the hardness of heart here, he's saying, guys, the problem is your hearts are hard. The problem is not that marriage is hard. The problem is your hearts are hard. Um, so let me try and tease it out. I think Jesus is kind of saying, look, Moses gave you commands, but because of the hardness of your heart, you didn't understand it. And then he goes to what God actually said prior to the law of Moses, grounded in the fundamental nature of creation, in the plan of God, before there was any hardness of heart, it was always intended in God's eyes that two people would become one flesh. A man and a woman would become one flesh, and that would be the case forever without exception. I don't know. What do you think about that? It's perfect. So this is not the typical stance of most evangelical churches. Um, and this was kind of one of those things that like, I mean, if you trace the history of it, I think it was like in the 60s that, that the U.S. began to accept no-fault divorce, meaning you could just get divorced for any reason at all. And, and then the church began to feel like, well, we've got these divorced people. Like, we don't want them to feel bad when they come to church. So let's just, like, not talk about it. And then the next step is, well, maybe there are some reasons for divorce. And then you've got, like, straight-up pastors divorcing their wives. And the church is like, yeah, well, you know, marriages are dysfunctional. It's hard. So whatever. And then, and then I think from that you get, well, what does marriage even mean anyway? To now the church is like, well, you know, gay marriage, like, marriage. What does it matter? I, I, I don't think I'm out of line when I say, like, there's a thread that goes from the beginning of that process to the end of that process. They've traded God as love for love is love. Yeah, trading God is love for love is love. What does that even mean? Like, what is love is love? That's a dis conversation for a different time, but you're right. Um, and, and this is always what we do, right? Did God really say, don't eat the fruit? Did God really say he cares as much about marriage? God, does God really think this is a big deal? Satan say there's a difference between like uh, making sure the church just makes a stand for that and then also allowing it in the congregation. Say, ask your question again. 
I mean, it's one thing to say the churches are wrong for not affirming this, but then what about saying churches that affirm it but don't do anything about it in their congregation? Is that equally wrong? Because of what are those people sitting in our church receiving the grace that comes with a church? Yeah. And they're sitting in our congregation living on, on, as adulterers. I, I mean, I'm willing to go as far as say that's equally as bad. Well, I mean, where, where I'm going to get... Where I'm going to get when we get to like verses 10 through 12 is like what it, we're so deep into this mess. Like how do we clean this up? Repent. Yeah. Re graces. Repent is huge. The complexity of like after divorce marriages, like what, how do you, how do you do that? I think that is where like things just get tricky, but repent yes absolutely and like and I think there's probably some people that maybe feel the burden now who need to look back and be like I, I definitely was not following the way of Jesus like maybe I wasn't even a believer maybe I was and I was immature maybe I was and I was disobedient but yes repentance for that absolutely and um, I, I don't I mean I think the church needs to call those people to repentance I don't know that we need to like you know shame people in that process like that, that mistake is made. So now let's ask the question, what does it look like to repent and, and, and walk differently than that? Um, but I, I, I mean, church leadership should have been dealing with this decades ago. Um, and we should still be dealing with it. Um, and we're not. Uh, and we're going to continue to talk about it because we do need to look at Matthew 19, okay? But I, I think the, the real... <laughs> Uh, verse 9. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I've been corresponding with this guy. He's gone radio silence now. He's not corresponding with me anymore. And, um, you know, he thinks he calls himself a Christian. He thinks he's justified in his divorce. And, uh, and basically he denies this verse. Like, right? Like, even though he, he says that when he got married to his wife, they were both professing Christians, basically, God made a mistake in their marriage. And now he's going to fix it by undoing the marriage. I mean, this guy is going to fix it by undoing the marriage. Uh, I mean, if you believe in the sovereign wisdom of God in what he does, then you have to say, God brought this together, right? This was not a mistake. It wasn't coincidence. It wasn't just your choice. God actually ordained this marriage. And now do you think that you have the right to undo it? Now, I think there's a, I think that's the immediate application, but there's a, a, a greater application beyond that. Man has no right to undo what God has done in marriage. That is true. That is God's immutable creation intention for marriage. But I would say further than that, we're not permitted to adapt God's law to our particular preferences, right? God has done this. God has spoken this. God has determined this. What right does man have to say, no, 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 no. We got a better plan. We're going to do this instead, right? When we try and do that, we are revealing basically our hardness of heart. We are essentially saying, I, I do not like what God says, I don't want to do what God says, I'm going to do something different. And um, that's probably the ultimate problem, right? Is that in all kinds of different ways, 
we may look at what scripture says and then say, I don't think we should do that. That doesn't sound good. Um, yeah, so before we, well, let's mention one other thing and then we'll look at Matthew 19. Um, Jesus is routinely accused of saying nothing against homosexuality, which is stupid because all of the Bible is the word of God. Like it doesn't, Jesus does not have to say something in order for God to have a clear, unequivocal stance on it. Um, but do you think that uh, verses 6 through 8 offer a sufficient defense for marriage being the exclusive union of one man and one woman? Yes. yes. Does Jesus in any way here fail to address the issue of same-sex couples? No. No. I agree wholeheartedly. Right? And, uh, I mean, it's, it's cheesy and it's, people find it really offensive, but I actually think it's kind of clever that God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. <laughs> and and uh, it's just true. Like, man, this is just so dumb. Like, people who call themselves Christians who are accepting this as, like, you know, a biblical ethic because love is love, whatever, and God is a God of love, they are just so, I don't know how else to say it, except they're so incredibly dumb. Because all of it fits together. It's God's procreative purposes, right? Same-sex couples cannot procreate. Just look at the, the physiology of the human body, male and female, right? It works with heterosexual couples. It does not work with same-sex couples, right? Um, there's all kinds of, and I'm, there's children in the room, so I'm trying to be appropriate here, but there's all kinds of, it's been buried and suppressed now, but there's a great book called Homosexuality and the Politics of Truth, not written by a believer, that's got ridiculous amounts of evidence how unbelievably destructive that approach to relationships is, sexual relationships. Um, you can't find information like that anymore. Studies like that are not funded any longer because it's, you know, it's not politically correct to do that kind of thing. Um, so it's an older book. I think it's from the 70s or maybe the 80s. Um, you know, the family unit, like you can't raise kids in a same-sex couple. You can't have kids, but you also can't raise them. They're going to be dysfunctional by definition because the two flesh are meant to be one flesh, and that's a complete unit, okay? So... There's all kinds of reasons, but I don't think we need anything other than this right here. Verse six, from the beginning, God made them male and female. And then you can supplement that with a man shall leave his father and hold fast to his wife. So you don't need anything else. And if somebody's like, well, that's not sufficient, then just say, all right, well then you reject the word of God. Like I, I don't need to continue to argue. Jesus made it pretty clear. It's your hardness of heart that leads you to say, that's not enough. Yeah, relating to that, I like how Paul says in Romans 1, a debased mind. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yep, a debased mind. Yeah, and there's lots of other places we can go, actually, that, that speak about this, but Jesus offers us enough. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of the things that's so beautiful about the teaching of Jesus is he's so economical with his words. Um, have you ever read a big book and been like, I think that that 400 page book could have been like 50 pages. 
Like Jesus can cram so much teaching into such a short phrase. Like you could spend the rest of your life meditating on the Sermon on the Mount. And it's so brief and it's so concise and it's so brilliant. Jesus knows how to say deep and complex things in very simple terms. Yeah. Were you going to say something else? I said, I said it's perfect. It is, right? And we can expect that if Jesus wanted to say anything other than one male and one female, he would have, but that's sufficient. Um, okay, so let's look at Matthew 19 now. And maybe I should have just brought that in at the beginning, but... So, I'm guessing this is probably the very same moment because the verse, uh, when you're in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 2, give us a pretty similar kind of introduction. But it doesn't have to be. This might be a separate conversation. But <clears throat> when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. So, there you go. He's moving south, just like Mark has beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause right and 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 now you kind of see what what happened with Deuteronomy 24 was it and and what the Pharisees did is like basically this woman displeased me right like she overcooks the chicken and I want a divorce um, for any reason. <clears throat> and uh, verse 4, Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That must be, that's what an insulting way to speak to these people. <laughs> you're Pharisees. You're like the official best educated people on this. Haven't you even read? Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And so in this place, Jesus uh, doesn't reference Moses at all. He goes back further, right? He goes back to the creation mandate. Verse 5, And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. That's Genesis 2, right? What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not, say, was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces a wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And this is where the disciples say, if, it is, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it, it's better not to marry. <laughs> and there's a, and there the people here trying to say why Moses command and it's not a command from Moses that's why Jesus said permitted yeah right they're this trying to like 10 it says Jesus says command though so it gets I think Matthew has the fuller <clears throat> no but the, the, the nature of man is trying to like twist a little bit to to get right. their own agenda like command Mo Moses command this but if you read Mark, Jesus does say Moses commanded. Yeah, that, so that is one of the things that was tricky for me, right? Verse 3, Jesus answered them, what did Moses command you? 
But uh, but maybe he's pointing out that like Moses didn't really have a command on this, right? Where do we have to go to get this command? We have to go actually to the mouth of God Himself, or maybe maybe what Jesus has in mind here is Moses wrote Genesis, right? So that's the command. Like, guys, you're going to Deuteronomy, but that's not actually where we find the command. We find it in the word of Moses that's back in Genesis 2. I don't know. Mine doesn't state it as, like, a rhetorical. He wrote this command because uh, of the hardness of your heart. Okay. And I looked at the word. It is command. Yeah. I feel like Jesus could have used other words. I, yeah. But, again, I, I mean, I, I think this one fits. The, the and it, it's a fuller development right. of the story. Not that I'm picking and choosing which one is right. I just like this harmonizes better no that and that's a really good principle right we let scripture interpret scripture right so if we find a passage that's difficult to understand then we can look for other passages that speak about the same subject that might bring clarity so i think that's a beautiful thing to do particularly when it comes to the gospels because we are looking at the same scene i think um so Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 7. And then we'll have to come back and finish Mark verses 10 through 12. Uh... Let's pick up in <clears throat> verse 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. What does that mean? It means he heard Jesus say this directly. Yeah. Not to, to minimize whatever Paul says, you better listen to, because he was an apostle and sent from God, and he has authority to do so, he even says so. But in this case, he's just reminding you. This, you know, this is not my spiritual intuition and, and decisive because I'm a leader. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Some people kind of misunderstand these parentheses here in verse 10 and verse 12. To the married, I give this charge. Paul says, not I, but the Lord. And then verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. Okay, as if there's a part of scripture here that Paul writes that isn't authoritative and it's just like his, you know, his kind of, best guess or some some good marriage advice but that's not what Paul is saying Paul is saying we have a direct teaching from God verse 10 and that teaching is this right it came from Jesus Christ himself and then verse 12 is still authoritative but he's saying this is not a teaching which Jesus gave but this is a teaching which I am giving to you under the authority of the spirit Does that make sense? Okay. Um, So verse 10, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, right? What God brought together, therefore to let not man separate. That's, That's what Paul is saying, Jesus said. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife, right? So like, and I think here Paul is talking to two believers. If you have two believers that are married, they should remain together. That's God's intention. If they separate, 
then she should remain unmarried. And and look, he doesn't use the divorce the word divorce here, but that's what he means. <clears throat> right? If they separate, she should remain unmarried. Or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So is this mean? No. I, I don't think it's mean, and I, I think it actually reflects, if, if, if we're talking about two believers here, this really reflects the question like, what kind of power do we believe the Spirit of God and the Word of God have? No power or real power? What he's saying is really for our own good, so that we don't fall into adultery. Yeah, totally. That's also a huge part of it, right? It's for our good so that we don't fall into adultery. But... I think a married couple should be able to reconcile their differences. It may take time, but if it's the Spirit of God that produces the fruit of righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, how could you have two people that are bearing that kind of fruit that can't figure out how to live together? And then, in, in addition to that, just by putting into practice the commands of Scripture. Um, I think that this should be possible. And I think that in reality, we're just unwilling to do it because it's, it can be hard, right? So this guy that I'm corresponding with, again, sorry to use him as an example so much, but I think it's pertinent. You know, he's, he's got these ambitious plans to go build a business and he's going to be used by Jesus. And he's, he's got a brilliant mind. But none of that matters. Like he will not be able to stand before God and be like, yeah, I divorced my wife. But God, you know, that, that freed me up to serve you better in this way and this way and this way. No, like that is the thing that God has clearly commanded. He wills for this man's life. This flesh is weak. Yeah. So then verse 12, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord, meaning that there's just no clear gospels, gospel record of Christ teaching on this subject, but this is still the authoritative word of God. This is the spirit of God speaking through Paul. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Man, think about that. Like, think about what kind of utter jerk wife you might have if she's an unbeliever. And there's no out. Like, she might be the same. You just changed in the things you want to do or do. Yeah. Yeah, it's true, right? Like you could have a situation where you've got two a couple where neither of them are believers. One of them becomes a believer. He begins to move towards righteousness. She continues her drift towards unrighteousness. And that gap gets wider and wider and more and more difficult, right? Um, but we don't get Paul saying, so I recognize that that'll be really, really hard. And once she reaches this level of intolerance, then just leave her, right? No, like God knew what he was doing. When he had you get married, even before you were a believer, living in sin, and now you are a believer, and trust that over to him. And the truth about marriage is like, it's going to, there are going to be seasons where things get difficult, yet if we're both believers and trust in Christ, regardless of the circumstances, we're going to guide ourselves and honor God first, yeah. therefore we will go ahead and people need to surrender and serve one another. Amen. Well, the only thing that could get in between a married couple is their own sin. Yeah, I would agree with that. Sin is the thing that is going to affect and destroy a marriage. And, um, you know, the hardness of heart comes back in because you're really, again, you're really saying three things. You're saying, one, God does not know what he's doing because I'm married to this person and it's a bad marriage. 
And so God clearly didn't have his hand in that. Then you're saying, too, the Spirit of God does not have power because I can't possibly live with this person. And, yeah, you're admitting that you don't believe the Spirit can give you that ability. And then third, you're saying the Word of God is really not authoritative for my life because I've got a better plan. Uh, I don't think a Christian can say those three things, at least not persist in saying those three things. You might have a moment where, you know, in weakness, you you say something kind of like that. But I, I don't think we can persist in that kind of hard-hearted unbelief. Um, let's finish verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Right? So the ethic applies either way, male or female. 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. Um, I mean, I think that there's a lot of opportunity in the context of a marriage like this for people to have their eyes open to God's grace. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. That's uh, important to know the unbeliever. Too many Christians try to, to use that as like some believer left me and I'm free. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I can't help but think of a couple we both know. I don't see any grounds and I feel like they both have to come back. Otherwise, they can never return. There was no adultery, at least yet. Okay. I, I, uh, but let's talk about this a little bit more. I think, so you've got a couple where one actually, let's just say the, the husband is a believer, the wife is proved to be an unbeliever, and she chooses to leave for any reason whatsoever. Like she just decides to go. I think that what Paul's saying here is that that man is now released and can go get remarried. Okay, so we would agree on that. Yeah. Um, but, but, uh, we, and we, ha- we were going to talk about the exception clause in Matthew 19. We still have to come back to that because there is one exception that Jesus does make for this. Um, but even then, we, we overemphasize the exception and not the intention. But, uh, you know, in this case, I do think there is grounds for somebody to get remarried if they're basically abandoned by their unbelieving spouse. Um, all right, any other questions or thoughts and comments on 1 Corinthians 7? I think you can tell a person's heart, too, right away. Like, that person's, like, marrying the next day. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. They should be hoping their parting spouse yes. will come back. And there should be yes. I think. Yes, I agree. This should not be something that is done, yeah, quickly. I agree with that 100%. Um, okay. So then uh, come back to Mark because we'll deal with verses 10 through 12 and then the, the exception clause. Oh, well, let, let's actually deal with the exception clause. I'm sorry I have you kind of all over the place. Ma- back in Matthew 19, what is the one exception? Yep. Verse 9 of Matthew 19. I would say that still, even if your spouse commits sexual immorality, or like engages in adultery, uh, you should still seek to reconcile. I think that would be actually Jesus' intention. That's how he is with us. We're adulterers and he's still faithful. Exactly. Exactly. And... um, 
Yeah, I mean, verse 9 is a little bit tricky because you, you may have a believer who in a moment of weakness engages in an awful sin like adultery, and there should be reconciliation there. Um, that I think that would be God's intention. Um, I think if you get to an, uh, an aspect where this person is a serial, unrepentant adulterer, then you've got a different problem, which is you're dealing with an unbeliever. Um, it is really hard to fall in bed with somebody, though. You know what I mean? It takes a lot of steps. Yeah. So, so the person has, has had a lot of time to be rebellious. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if you're going to, if you've got an issue, if you've got a situation like that, then like Second Corinthians chapter 7 that deals with repentance is what you should be looking for, right? Um, does this person realize? But, I mean, occasionally that, that actually does happen. All right. Uh, not, not that we should accept that as, like, normal or anything like that. Don't, don't misunderstand. Um, the sense with the, the, if the adulterating spouse repents and wants to come back, there's also an issue with you can't forgive because then you're not forgiven, you know, and that's a powerful, hard thing to do. Yeah, and that's a huge part of the reconciliation process, right? Is like, basically, this guy keeps saying this 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 woman is unrepentant, and in my conversations with her, she's like, no, I'm I, like I recognize I was awful, and like I'm in the process of changing, and I do repent of that. And so, really, what he's saying is, I'm unwilling to forgive. And and there's, I guess, maybe a fourth thing that you're saying is like. God's power to forgive me does not change my heart in such a way that I'm willing to forgive others. And that's Matthew 18, right? The unrepentant or the unforgiving servant. Um, there's just no situation where a Christian can say, I'm unwilling to forgive you. Or you have not received forgiveness. That's the clear teaching of Jesus. Now, the working out of that forgiveness, okay, we can be gracious and give time. Like, it's going to take time. You're... That person's going to have to work to restore some trust. You're going to have to work hard to give them some trust. That is definitely going to take some hard effort. I get it. But if you're just like, I'm unwilling, well, that's simply unchristian. You cannot stand in that position. Okay, so back to Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. The disciples ask some follow-up questions here. And uh, in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. You know, in the house, maybe they were looking for some private opportunity to kind of be like, Jesus, you can't really mean this, though. I mean, this is like, this is tough, right? Uh, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Um, so really, Jesus is expanding the teaching in such a way as to remove the option for remarriage. You know, if you if you do end up divorced from your spouse and you profess Christ and they profess Christ and there is no way to reconcile in the moment, then celibacy is what's left for you. And I think the intention is here, the, the idea here is that so that you will labor to be reconciled. That's the end goal. Um, and I would again say, tragically, the church has essentially embraced remarriage under the guise that it's kind of mean to like make somebody be single for the rest of their life. Right? 
I mean, you know, you have people who rush into marriage and then they realize like, oh, I don't love this person anymore, which is just stupid. That's unbiblical. Mm -hmm. And then they get divorced and they call themselves Christians. They're in their mid-20s. They get remarried. Um, I don't think that's an option. And yet, again, people will say, well, that's just mean. That person's supposed to live the next 60 years of their life single? Yes. Or be reconciled to their spouse. Well, unless their spouse has remarried and committed adultery in that manner. And then they would be then free. Be free. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, <clears throat> yeah, and, and really, let's get down to the principle here, which is that a lot of times when we encounter a teaching in the Bible, we don't believe that it's actually good. We don't believe it's practical. We don't think it can be applied. We don't want to apply it, so we find some kind of excuse. Um, and, and man, I hear people say this kind of thing frequently as Christians. And I'm not saying in our church. When I say things like that, don't misunderstand. I have lots of conversations with lots of different people, so I'm not referring to people in our church. But it is not uncommon for somebody to essentially hint that they are a Christian, but that they really don't think that what Jesus says about this subject in this case is really all that applicable. And uh, we just can't do that. It doesn't work like that. Um, yeah, and, and I would add to this, I've been pointing to this, but I think by embracing the idea that Christians can divorce for a whole number of different reasons, in doing so, the church essentially surrenders the power of the gospel. The gospel is not powerful to transform people. The spirit is not at work to heal. The word is not wise to lead. The new man is not greater than his sin. And so, yeah, get divorced. We, we believe that. Not only that, but we destroy the picture. Like Paul says, that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So when you divorce, you're just destroying that symbolism and showing that Christ isn't faithful to the church. Yeah. And that is the most profound thing. Like, I didn't have it in my notes to go to Ephesians 5, but Paul says there that Jesus calls his bride, calls the church his bride, not because we have marriage, and therefore it's a good illustration, but rather Jesus intended to call his church the bride, and therefore God made marriage to point to the gospel, right? That's incredible, which also then means that God may have made your particular marriage the mess that it is to point to his power to reconcile the mess that we are. Are you willing to accept that? That your marriage might reflect the glory of God's persistence in his commitment, his faithfulness to his bride. And other marriages might be good because they reflect what, you know, a healthy relationship between God and man looks like, right? Man. And so, and so if, you're, if the concept of marriage exists so that God could point to the gospel, how dare you destroy your marriage and profane what the gospel means? Yeah. Or I wish all the, the couples will just always remember your vows from the beginning that better, health, richer and poorer. You yeah. Know, so, you know, if you, just, if you just remember that vow from the beginning, it will just, you know. Yeah. It's your promise yeah. to Amen. God and, and to your spouse. Amen. And having performed marriages, stood up there within a foot of a bride and a groom as they're saying those things, that's the moment, right? That's, that, is the, that is the emotional moment where people struggle to get their words out because they recognize, they know in their heart of hearts how profound that statement is.
All right, this is not a mean teaching. Um, you know, this is a necessary teaching because our hearts are hard. And uh, assuming that Christians don't have hard hearts, this really shouldn't be a difficult teaching. And it shouldn't be one that we as churches are embarrassed to stand on. And again, so much damage has been, has been done culturally within the church by sort of accepting this kind of like, you know, anything goes when it comes to divorce among Christian couples. Man, we destroyed marriage way back then. And we should expect that every Christian marriage can actually obey Jesus in this area and that they can reconcile the differences that do come up in marriage. Um, and if not, then I think that we should assume one or both of the spouses are not actually Christians and we should progress through the process of discipline um, to get to the bottom of that. We're going to have to end there. Any last questions, thoughts, comments? Separate uh, applications, kind of the imagery of like what God has separated or what God has put together. It's great. I like uh, this imagery I heard is like getting married is like taking two pieces of paper and gluing it together, right? It can be separated, but when you do, pieces of this paper is still stuck on that paper and vice versa. So even though you are separated, you do have a piece of the other person with yeah. you. And just from an application, practical standpoint, like to the encouragement to the young couples, you're hard. If you, you're dating as a teenager and stuff and you guys are separated, you know, in my pre-Christ time, I there's a piece of me with those people. Yeah, um, I can't give myself fully over to my wife because because of that. Yeah, you know, like, it's totally true. So it's and then wise and good. Yeah, to. he is and totally. It's absolutely for your good, right? And I, I think maybe I've mentioned this before, but I remember this like kind of cartoon. Uh, you remember those old cartoon strips with the different frames, right? And there's one, and it's these two guys standing by this fence. And one of the guys is like, I think I want to find out what's on the other side of the fence. And the guy's like, why? The other guy's like, well, I think the fence is there probably for a reason. Like, I think it's for your good. And the guy's like, no, no, no. It's definitely to keep me out of what's good on the other side, right? And so the next frame is him like getting getting back and then running at the fence and he jumps over. And of course, on the other side of the fence is this big cliff, right? At the bottom of which is his death. <laughs> and uh, it's just a good illustration, right? We think that God is holding out on us and what's good is on the other side of the boundaries. But in reality, the boundaries are there because God loves us and he cares for us. And man, isn't that illustrated in Adam and Eve? Like what was on the other side of, yep. their, of the fence there? It was yep. everything yep. awful. All right, let's pray. God, I pray that we would, again, just have so much confidence in your word that uh, we wouldn't think that it's just like a nice guidebook or even this acronym basic instructions before leaving earth, but that it is the absolute authoritative teaching by which our lives must be grounded and built and established and lived. And I pray that we would have faith that inside of those teachings, inside of those boundaries is all of our goodness, is life to the full. And so help us hold fast to that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.